Hello and welcome to the 93rd episode of Indie Radio, a weekly podcast in which we chat with the creative minds involved with the creation of indie games. I'm Brett Hudson. And I'm Ian Jones. Today, we spoke with Dan Fedor, the founder of Blue Battle Games, about working with collaborators, memorization techniques, AI, GPT-3, picking and choosing systems into game design, the long-lost art of physical goodies and toys, and more. This episode was originally recorded on May 8th, 2021, and released on July 3rd, 2021. My name is Daniel Fedor. I am the uh, developer behind NeoScavenger and Astronauts, one of the developers, um, the one who started Blue Bottle Games. Prior to that, I worked at BioWare for about seven years, and prior to that, I was a web developer. But I've been doing the indie thing since about 2011, and uh, Astronauts is my second game. Um, so that gives you an idea of the pace at which I work. But I kind of like it that way. I, I like being as as low cost and casual as possible because it gives me time to kind of do it the way I want to do it, even if that means really slowly. <laughs> um, and hopefully I cross the finish line before the funds run out. So <laughs> that's the story. That is, that is a good goal. For the listeners, how would you describe Neoscavengers, astronauts, and the universe that they inhabit? So it's our world in the near future, Earth, the solar system, um, except basically on Earth, everything failed in a cascade of events. It wasn't a single thing that broke the Earth. It was everything a little bit broke. And... You know, enough of those systems fall apart, then you basically end up with apocalypse. Um, and so on Earth, we have the ruins of, of civilization as we know it about 50-ish years from now. Um, and the level of technology is, is roughly reflective of that. Um, and part of that is um, hard to explain because there seems to be supernatural stuff happening. And there are questions of whether they've just always been happening and we didn't hear about them, or are they coming back, or what. But, for example, um, Michigan's famed dogman seems to be happening. Uh, There are reports of people disappearing to dogmen out in the wild. Um, So there's kind of like a little bit of a cryptid, supernatural vibe uh, to the universe. Um, On top of all of that, Earth's orbital space is shattered by uh, Kessler syndrome or cascade ablation, depending on who you ask. Uh, But satellites basically have degraded or crashed into a hypervelocity blender orbiting the Earth, and nobody can leave or enter Earth without basically being shredded. Um, And so the rest of the solar system, which was starting to get its feet, like an economy was starting up there on multiple planets and moons, is now cut off from Earth. and Neo Scavenger is following the story of somebody down on Earth trying to figure out what happened um, because they've been asleep for a very long time. And Astronauts is a story of people trying to make their way up in space. They have a little bit better visibility on what happened, but things are still pretty harsh. More economically harsh in space, whereas it's more apocalyptically harsh on Earth. Um, so... I liken the world to kind of a blend of uh, Alien slash Aliens, um, Cowboy Bebop, Blade Runner, 
um, Firefly, The Expanse. Uh, if you like any of those universes, this is kind of a lot like those, and, and in many ways inspired by those. Um, so uh, if you need kind of a, a quick icon to conjure to mind, that would be it. Fantastic. Um, and then just as far as uh, gameplay goes, do you want to give a little blurb about that to kind of... Sure, yeah. Um, so Neo Scavenger is, is more like turn-based. It almost feels a little bit like the early game of Civ, exploring a map, uh, picking up resources, but then there's a lot of inventory management, choose-your-own-adventure-style encounters, um, and it's survival uh, against the wilderness and the things in it and people in it. Um, so that is, is a little bit more slow-paced um, and harsh. I guess Astronauts is also harsh, but it's real-time with pause or fast-forward. Um, and it's a little bit more management-y because you are, in addition to role-playing a captain, you're kind of managing your spaceship and your crew, which is a lot of systems. Um, but it, they do share a lot of DNA. Uh, things like the inventory management, and in some cases, there are probably going to be Neo Scavenger-like encounters here and there. Um, even though a lot of the conversational stuff is more procedural uh, in astronauts, but that is that is building and managing spaceships, uh, sort of maintaining your crew, meeting people, and maintaining your crew, and the experience of operating a spaceship in, in a capitalistic dystopia. How many developers are on the team in total? It comes and goes. Yeah, actually, uh, two days ago, Thursday, yeah, two days ago, we had a, um, an all-hands live stream on YouTube for the first time. Um, so everybody who is currently, like, uh, not necessarily full-time, but pretty close to um, full-time, was on the stream, and that was five of us total. So it was Karis, Chris, Corey, and uh, Michael were joining me on the stream. Or we were joining Karis on the stream. Um, but in addition to that group, there's there's another handful of people who, like, they do pick up work here and there, things that, that we need done um, that are either they're better at doing it or um, we just uh, don't have the time doing it, uh, sometimes both. So... That list is quite long. If if you go to the the game's um, main menu, there's a credit screen, and I think the list of people who have contributed to Astronauts is an entire like uh, column of text from top to bottom. Um, because the game's been in development since like 2016-ish, um, and over that time, a lot of people have kind of come and gone, especially uh, like artists who do like five illustrations, um, and it's you know, smaller, smaller tasks that come and go. So, mm -hmm. and I, I think in the long run, I like this format because there's kind of like a pool of people out there I've worked with before. I trust them. I like their work. And as long as there's enough of those people available at any point in time, it's like, Hey, let's team up. Let's do some stuff. Uh, or like, I'm going to need some, some work done in the near future do you have availability and that's kind of a nice place to be for me because i don't have to pay somebody to basically sit on their hands while they're waiting for me to to be ready for them uh, which if you're like a full-time studio is is frequently the problem production schedules are 
are notorious for underutilizing certain team members at the beginning, middle, and end. Um, and that's why you end up with kind of having multiple projects on the go, so they all kind of interlock. But that's also pretty expensive to maintain, and if there's a slight misstep, it can really gum up the works. So I'm hoping that with more practice and refinement, this kind of like super indie team that comes and goes at varying times is is a new model that'll work for for studios on a tighter budget. Mm -hmm. Is is this super indie a new title? Are we are we trademarking or this? It in this, in this talk? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, they had the super bands in in the the eighties and nineties, didn't they? So maybe we call it the super indies. Perfect. I, I'm I'm all on board. Is there? A, I think in some ways the film industry kind of does something like that, where they spin up a whole production company around a film, and then the contractors are are lined up for that schedule, and then at the end of the thing they just un, unravel it or whatever. Um, which is different than what I'm doing because I'm not spinning down the company after the game, but. Uh, in some ways, it's like the team only exists for the game, and then another team, which may overlap it or not, mm -hmm. uh, is on the next one. So I think it, it probably exists out there in, in various forms. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, uh, the thing that I can think of is um, uh, XOK Games, the, uh, the studio by the Celeste developers. They, okay. they frequently collaborate with the same folks and like have overlap in there. In their teams. Yeah. yeah, actually, I'm seeing that a lot with kind of the circle of indies that I chat with occasionally. There's um, frequent pair-ups between certain developers or certain talents. Um, and yeah, if you've, if you've had a really good working experience with somebody, you definitely want to work with them again, and that's energizing. So I can see why it's popular, and I, I think people are making it work. So uh, on the topic of... So on the topic of you talking about uh, circles of developers that you you know keep in touch with and you, you keep up with, are you involved with the Seattle Indies group at all uh, here in Seattle? Seattle Indies, they do their their periodic get-togethers in, in Seattle, which mm -hmm. I don't think I've been to one yet. So I'm aware of them, but I haven't actually interacted with them much. Um, so I moved to Seattle in 2016. Okay. Um, and then I moved to South Seattle in 2017, which is where where we planned on permanently living. The, the first place we lived was just kind of like a staging area until we figured out where we are going to live. Um, so I didn't have a lot of time to kind of um, get into the, into the scene here. But I did meet, uh, what was it called? There's like a shared indie development space in Seattle, and I met Christopher Floyd, who runs it, at an earlier PAX. Um, and so I sort of linked up with him again, visited their space. That seemed really cool. Um, seemed like some good people there. Um, the Seattle Indies, I don't know what they call them. They're like uh, gatherings that they do where where people show off the games they're working on and stuff. That always seemed like it'd be cool to get into, but it always seemed like the timing was wrong. We we have a young daughter, too, so it was also kind of crawling out of the canyon of early childcare mm. and sleepless nights. Um, but thankfully, that's that's now reached a stage where she is um, 
mostly self-sufficient uh, and there's more time for us to get away and do stuff. So, um, so once pandemic is over, maybe we'll come out of our shells a bit more and, and start exploring the local indie scene because it's huge. And it's actually part mm -hmm. of the reason we moved here was if for some reason um, Blue Bottle Games doesn't work out, there's a million opportunities on our doorstep. We don't have to move again to, mm -hmm. to find work. Uh, so that's also sort of a comfort. Yeah, that's that's what drew me to Seattle is just the the indie scene here, and then also three hours north you've got Vancouver, British Columbia, and three hours south you've that's, got uh, Portland. Like three huge indie game hubs. You could trip and fall, and you'll be in an indie studio somewhere. Pretty much. <laughs> uh, yeah. I just looked up the workshop that you were talking about. It looks like it's called Indies Workshop. There um, it is, yeah. And yeah, it's in the heart of Capitol Hill, uh, which is... Yeah, it, no, it originally was Soto, oh. I think. Um, kind of near the baseball field-ish. Um, so I'm not sure what prompted them to move. But yeah, they're up in Capitol Hill now. <laughs> Wild. Uh, Ian and I were potentially going to move to Capitol Hill, uh, but we're looking to uh, do Kirkland now. Hmm. Kirkland, I think it would be a nice choice for us just because we wanted a little bit more space. But there's a part of me that I, I lived in New York City for about four and a half years, and I miss it frequently. Um, that, that feeling of just being able to walk out your front door, get on a subway, and then be literally anywhere in the city and like surrounded by, you know, all of the people, the, the culture, the things to see and do. Um, I miss that. But it's like I when I'm in the city, I miss the wilderness. And when I'm in the wilderness, I miss the city. And Kirkland is one of those places where you can kind of have a little bit of both, which is it's a nice mix. And uh, we're down in South Seattle, which is getting pretty close to like Tequila and Renton. Uh, so it's, it's still pretty green out here, too. But there's a an LRT or, or link light rail uh, station not too far away, so we can still have access. I'm looking forward to getting back into the city. I miss it. It's been a year and a half, <laughs> I think, since I've seen anything anything north of like uh, Columbia City. Yeah, every time I've visited Seattle, I have enjoyed just how easy it is to get around anywhere, just buses and uh, the light yeah. rail system. Yeah, and they just hooked up the light rail to the monorail, um, so you can use your card to transfer. Like, that was just starting to become a thing before the pandemic hit. And, you know, hopping on that with my daughter and going to um, Seattle Center and, like, the museums there and even just the big fountain and stuff, it's like, I can, I can get there now. I don't have to drive. I don't have to find parking. I can just walk over there, which is, I love that feeling. I love, I love cities for that reason. Yeah, every every time um, I would visit, uh, I I would just feel so good going back. Like usually when you go on a trip, like your flight back, you feel a little tired. You know, you, you feel the effects of the trip. But every time I would come out here and I'd be walking everywhere, just getting like all this blood flowing, is it would just like bring up such a good feeling in me that I'd be flying back and I'd feel rejuvenated when I get back to. You know, where I'd be That's living. a good position to be in. Yeah, I usually, uh, I fall asleep on a lot of flights because I'm just exhausted by the by the trip. But mm -hmm. energizing, being in a place that energizes you is... 
So hopefully when, you know, everything's settled back down and we can go back out into the world, I can, I can find that feeling whenever I want just by taking a trip across the bridge. Yeah. Where are you guys now? Are you, you're in the area, right? I'm, I'm in Kirkland right now. Um, oh, okay. Yep. Kind of on the cusp of Moss Bay and uh, downtown Kirkland. Um, okay. And then Ian, where, where are you again? Which, which uh, part of uh, I'm Washington? I'm Virginia right now. Just outside Anywhere. Washington, D.C. Um, <laughs> oh. But, yeah. I, I've been trying to get out to Seattle again for quite a while, but it's, uh, it's something happened in the past year, I think, and that just kind of threw things off. You know, I mm. don't want to get into that too much, but... Yeah. It's okay. <laughs> this, you don't have to bring up your personal stuff on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. That's that's my bad. <laughs> dark times, dark times. <laughs> yeah, no, Ian and I have been trying to get together for years, and one of us always has something coming up, and then we were like, already, we're like, we're gonna do this, and then the world's like, nope. Put so. the brakes on, folks. <laughs> <laughs> but January 2022, maybe. For real this time, yeah, sure. <laughs> That's me knocking on wood. I hope this is real wood. It's an Ikea desk. Like, there's like 50%. I have an Ikea desk. I don't want to chance it. That might make it worse. Uh. (laughs) I think there's a wood product in there. It's just, it's wood powder and glue, probably. Mm, Okay. (laughs) That's good enough for me. I'm sure that's good enough for Odin, too. Yes. Is it Odin? Is that who you're knocking wood for? Well, I mean, if it's an Ikea desk, like, he's going to be the one receiving oh. the oh. knock. Okay. I thought you were just revealing to me, finally, the origin of knocking. <laughs> but now oh. I kind of want to know. <laughs> we, can, we can look it up. Origin of knocking on wood. Which, I, which I gotta know this. <laughs> Whoa. In many cultures, it's a common superstition for people to knock their knuckles on a piece of wood to bring themselves good fortune or ward off bad luck. One common explanation traces the phenomenon to ancient pagan cultures, such as the uh, Celts, who believed <laughs> that spirits and gods resided in trees. Hmm. Okay, so, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. My mind will remember that because it makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's, there's spirits in trees. I have like a mnemonic device and that, that'll work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Isn't is mnemonic device the... Or the the fact that spirits live in trees and we're knocking on a tree product, it's like that all that connects a couple mm-hmm. neurons in my brain and, and mm-hmm. that'll stay that way now. Um, all right. If you said 1794 or something like that, I wouldn't remember it. <laughs> okay. Well, remind me, remind me the year at the end of the podcast there and we'll, we'll see who, if either I of us can remember. I remember it by the end. <laughs> okay. So, I'm curious about this because this is a, a method that I used to use to remember things. Um, is uh, when I when I would write be writing stories, I would tie things to three other things in the story. So I'd be like, okay, so th- this character has this event happen to them, and this event they they come into possession of some stone. The stone uh, belonged to this culture at one point. The stone uh, is related to this power, and this 
this person gets a stone at this place, which is also where this other thing happened. And I'm, by tying it to these three things, anytime I would think of any of those things, mm. I would then also think of this. So I would basically be doing a map in my head. Is that similar to that what you're sense. doing? Especially if, like, the place it was tied to had a power related to the power of the stone. Mm-hmm. Or, like, if the stone was was crafted from material that was only found in that place. Like, those are all kind of, like, double reinforcements or triple reinforcements mm-hmm. of the same thing. And, yeah, my brain works that way, where, like, if I can rationalize the answer, there's a much higher chance of me recalling it later than if I just have to rote memorize it. That is a really good do way you, of putting uh, it. Do you have a mnemonic device for keeping track of uh, when you make friends and enemies and astronauts? And who I, they are? <laughs> at first I thought you said a demonic device, but... Uh, <laughs> oh, that'd be interesting to you. Do you have a demonic device? Um... A mnemonic device for friends and enemies you make in astronauts. You mean like for the player to remember? Like, yeah, like when it comes up in the story, like for instance at the career kiosk or that type of thing, when you're mm-hmm. having the, uh, when it's like, oh, you've made a new enemy, you've made a new friend, this is what you view them as now. Do you like try to keep track of those names as they come up or do you just kind of rely on seeing it later in the UI when you're interacting with them again? Uh, I definitely put it in the UI later because I forgot frequently. Um, but I also, it was a late addition for me to put a portrait of their face in the career kiosk, uh, so that as you're making that enemy, their face comes up, which is a mnemonic device for humans. Like if there's one thing we are really good at, it is recognizing a face. Even if you don't know anything else about it, it's like, I've seen that face before. Um, so that is kind of a brain hack adding that, that portrait there, but I, like many people, suffer from the, oh, I might remember your face, but that's it. That's, that's all I know. Mm-hmm. There might be some, you know, primal feeling associated with that face if, if it's fear or love or something like that. Um, but frequently it's just like, yep, I know that face. Let's wait for more information. <laughs> so, um, I hope it gets to the point where, like, just by merely interacting with that person, you're like, oh, they don't like me. Okay. Like, like watching Memento, uh, it's like, oh, this person's chasing me. I, I guess my, I guess <laughs> it is so wild when you run into somebody that you remember meeting at one point, and you go, "There's no way they're gonna remember me." They're like, "Your face looks really familiar," but they don't necessarily remember anything else, like you're saying. But they like recognize your face, and you're like, "How? Where, where is it stored up here?" Oh, it's like, I think that's the only thing our brain, like, so I, I have a theory and I am not qualified to have this theory, but I have a theory that we'll allow it. (laughs) We're just pattern matching machines and the most important pattern our, our machine, our brain matches Mm -hmm. is the faces of people in our community, possibly rivaled by the face of a tiger in those bushes over there. But it's like we we are looking for for patterns in the noise, and our brain is just highly tuned to that. Um, and there's a nature link coming up here. Is, <laughs> is that related to the thing? Yes. <laughs> Problem solving nature. 
Yes. Is by adding complexity even when it's against our best interest. Yep. So look that at sounds... the image and like figure out like how, how would you make this symmetrical on both axes? How would I make it symmetrical? Remove the top four blues and replace them with whites. Okay. So most people would actually add blues to the upper right and the bottom two. And the, the basic idea is that our brains um, are more interested in additive properties uh, when solving problems than, you know, subtracting things. Because bigger numbers are good. You don't ever want to solve a problem by, you know, having less of something. We also have a bias against um, losing. Mm-hmm. Like if you gain $5 and lose $5, losing $5 hits you harder than gaining $5. So like they don't even out. Mm -hmm. There's a word for that too. It's it's like a, a loss bias or something. But uh, no, that's, that's an interesting observation. And I wonder if the reason, like in terms of programming, if I had to remove four dots from an image, it's a lot easier than adding 12. So... <laughs> Um, maybe that's why I went that way. <laughs> that's actually where the article goes, is it talks about AI trying to do it and how AI is tr going to try to find the path, a path of least resistance, even mm -hmm. though humans might put in a little extra effort to uh, make what would be good. And that's some new breakthrough about how to make AI be closer to mimicking the decisions that a human would make. Interesting. Um, especially, I, I think it even brings up to come full circle uh, facial recognition technology or, or something like that. Yeah. I'm excited you know. to see where, where AI gets, I'm a little bit dreading where AI gets applied, but mostly excited to see the kinds of things that AI mm -hmm. can do. Um, if if the only thing that AI produces moving forward is more GPT-3 text uh, pr <laughs> prompted fiction and and writing, I will be happy. Like, <laughs> I could sit and read that ridiculous AI-generated text <laughs> all day long. Have you, AI tells uh, jokes. I love it. Keep doing it. <laughs> have you been following anything that's been happening with AI Dungeon in, I think, the past few months or so it's been? Because it probably would be a few months ago to the day that I first heard about it and I looked it up. That's the thing where it's like, it's basically DMing a dungeon, yes. but the, it's like an AI that's that's running on a server. Right, yeah, I, I believe it is running GBT3 and or I think they swapped at some point to an even more refined version that was some commercial product. But uh, GPT-4. Yeah. That would be logical. too logical a naming scheme. This is more the Microsoft style, I think, where it's just like <laughs> Xbox Series, whatever. Anyway. You can um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but they've they've had some uh, concerns with the types of things that the AI's been suggesting. Uh, so there's Destroy there's definitely Destroy all humans. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, much much probably a little less concerning to me, weirdly. Anyway, um, <laughs> It's just, it is fascinating to me, and it is really cool to see uh, the kind of assisted writing that you can do with a system like that, but there definitely is a lot of potential for 
misuse, not even misuse, just a lot of potential for human biases or like the worst impulses and things that some minority of humans have, some subset, and for that to just come across and be exacerbated by this system that is, because of the large size of the data sets it's created from, it's kind of impossible for us to use that size of data set and actually moderate it and go through it and make sure that it's all things we want to be feeding into this. And that just manifests in some very concerning, not quite illegal, but it feels like almost should be ways with some of the things AI Dungeon was suggesting. But uh, anyway. Oh, interesting. Yeah, like so if they're, if the AI's behavior mimics what we as a society have labeled as either criminal or immoral, like that kind of thing you're talking about. It's... I guess without getting too into depth with with what was happening, a not insignificant portion of what happens in AI Dungeon is evidently basically people writing smut with the help of the AI, which is one thing. That's, you know, mm. they're fine with that. They're not trying to get rid of that entirely. But the AI increasingly was veering towards scenarios that involved children and or a lack of consent. Mm. And you just have a lot of things where you don't, yeah. You don't want any of that happening on your platform or to have any part in it. And there's a feature that allows you to publicly post things that you've created with AI as a story. So there's several things happening that all just added together to create a horrific mess. And that's yeah. where... that That's an interesting problem I don't want to have to personally solve, but uh, that's an interesting <laughs> problem to solve. <laughs> um, wow, and then you end up into a situation almost like with uh, ISPs and web hosting content providers like YouTube, where there's probably going to be a court case deciding who is responsible for for missteps like that. Um, is is the the creator of the software on the hook for it? Is the the author of the content or the person who prompted it to generate that content the person who published the content? Like, that's going to be a very interesting, probably series of, of legal battles. Right. Then, yeah, because then it does get into a weird situation of like, how intentional was it on the person's part to try to prompt the system to do that? Yeah. Like reading into their, even just their input log or something like, is this, is this what I think it is? Or is this just coincidental? And I guess a part of me also wonders, like, the source material the AI is using is it somehow cluing into the fact that like children are a really emotional hot spot for us, right? So like, oh, if the if the AI dungeon master really wants to pull on our heartstrings, do it to a kid instead of another adult, because in all of the other material it's looking at, it's like kids are are the most off limits target. Right. Um, so. It's almost like uh, if playing a C-sharp really gets people's hearts going, the AI is just going to keep hitting the C-sharp because <laughs> that's the thing that, that it thinks is going to have the most effect, and you've asked it to produce the highest effect possible. Um, like Monkey's Paw. Are you familiar with the Monkey's Paw? Vaguely. With uh, <laughs> the three wishes and all of yeah. that, basically. But yeah. Or something, and you get the worst possible interpretation of that wish. Right. <laughs> is monkey-pieing the, uh, <laughs> the dungeon prompt. 
Topics. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. Uh, so, Winsy, uh, Winsy, uh, Neo Scavenger, Astronauts, uh, GPT three. Uh, <laughs> so that would have been interesting. Like there was at least one period where uh, we talked about what if the AI that you talk with in uh, Astronauts was somehow driven by GPT three ish software. Because, um, I mean, it makes sense in that application, right? Like, it, it's almost like a Turing test. The player's um, conducting on the game. Uh, and I guess in that sense, we'd have to probably let them type in input. But, um, but yeah, like, what would happen if our characters were running that? Um, and I think one of the simplest answers is we would never basically get a license to run GPT-3. We'd have to, like, or, or we wouldn't get... GPT running in the game, we'd have to be like contacting a cloud service all the time to mm -hmm. use it, and it'd probably be pretty expensive, and it would require a lot of training. But um, but yeah, like I I think the application of of AI as as a driver for the AI personalities in the game um, it's a really cool one, and I, I hope some people try it. Um, we have a really really crude one in the game now where. Um, you know, the number of, of verbs everybody in the game has is limited to, say, like, six dozen. Um, you know, like, look on your PDA for social media to get, like, a social contact boost. Or insult this person to raise your esteem and lower theirs. Um, those kinds of things are all, like, in your uh, metaphorical quiver of arrows. Um, <laughs> And what the AI does is says, I feel like this now, and I want these stats to feel better. I want to feel, I want my esteemed discomfort to go away. So which of the moves that I can use in this limited scenario will do that best? Um, it'll choose one, and then it'll remember, did that work or not? How well did it work? And then the next time it has to make that decision, it will decide accordingly. Um, so... If insulting, if the AI insults me and then I insult it back, the next time it insults me, it should remember, well, the last time I did this, I ended up feeling worse. So I'm going to maybe try a different tactic. Um, so in theory, that's the way it's supposed to work, uh, but it still feels a little random um, when we're playing. So that kind of gets into, it sounds like you're describing the... Um... I believe you called it social combat in, in previous uh, interviews and things like that, which yeah. I find fascinating. So it's it, it's more centered around kind of those status effects that instead of just physical status effects like being hungry, you also have esteem and other things like that, and that informs the interactions when you're talking. Yep. Um, which is fascinating to me, but also I didn't realize... So you have almost like a machine learning thing built in there where... They're training themselves per player. How you play, they'll try to adapt to that, is what it sounds like. Yeah, and my hope was that you start playing a game, and maybe initially all of the characters kind of behave the way, the way every other game starts, because they start out with kind of like a basic training. Um, but over the course of playing and the way that you interact with these characters, they start to develop quirks um, so that if you are a really harsh taskmaster, 
you might end up with some really like frazzled kind of um, like I don't know how to describe the the outcome because I'm not a psychologist, but I th I'd imagine they're going to be very psychologically damaged people on your crew because you're constantly damaging them. Um, whereas somebody who's very kind might end up with a very uh, sort of lighthearted and family bonded crew. Um, and then by the end of, of like hours of play, they're like, well, I kind of don't want to say goodbye to these people because these people only exist in this game. They'll never exist again unless I play, you know, unless all of the cards play out the same way the next game, um, I've basically built a relationship with, with a fictional person. So to that end, uh, I don't know if, uh, have you ever played or looked into uh, the Outer Worlds? The... Uh... Kind of FPS RPG thing that came out a few years ago. That is the one that Obsidian did. Yes. Okay. I always uh, get confused with Outer Wilds. So yeah, <laughs> they're both fantastic. But uh, the thing, one of the things that stood out to me about that game, which just in my head is kind of very uh, linked to what you're you're describing, what I've seen in Astronauts, is that aspect of the kind of crew management stood out to me as something that really was a highlight of that game and being able to build up these complex relationships and kind of slightly branching narratives and things like that about what interactions you choose to have with them. Yeah. But of course it was limited to, there's only like six fixed characters that they carefully crafted for that game. Mm -hmm. The idea of that being truly unique people that I've met that no one else is going to meet every time I start a new character in Astronauts is I think one of the things that appeals to me the most about the game just because, I mean, that that's part of the kind of like Firefly-type fantasy of being able to go in and be like, it's not just me alone in space. I actually building up and selecting my crew and treating them whichever way I choose. Personally, not one who wants to antagonize the people that are in close quarters with me in the void of space, but <laughs> that's... Smart, that sounds smart. It's, it's, yeah, I feel like there might be some problems with being a dick to all of my... Uh, anyway, but no, it's... It is, it is very interesting to me that you have this very complex, rich system you're building out just around those social interactions, just around being able to kind of do the crew management, things like that. It feels like Astronauts has all of these different, separate, almost things that could just be their own game, all f just mm. pressed together into this one. Like my game design uh, philosophy. Yeah. <laughs> Throw it all in there. <laughs> when are we getting a grappling hook? Oh, that has to come in zero G. I I've actually got a, um, a what do you call it? a GitLab task set up for when you are in zero G, you may become stranded in in a room because you're mm -hmm. not able to reach any of the walls. Um, so, what kind of tools are we going to give you for exploring a derelict in zero G? And one of them is a grappling hook, uh, also like a, a self uh, self propelled canister or fire extinguisher. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like the Jaws of Life type tool that you see fire departments use makes a lot of sense in this, like, cut your way through a door or through some debris or force something open. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I'm looking forward to it, but that's that's one of the many, many systems that I wish I could add, and I don't know if I'll ever get around to doing them all, but, um, yeah. Getting back to your, your point about outer, um, outer worlds, the... Um, yeah, the, the kind of procedural rogue, roguelike people management aspect of it appeals to me 
kind of on two different levels. First, as a player, because I kind of like manipulating systems more than exploring pre-written content, because I feel like the chances of me being surprised are greater, um, even though maybe the chances of getting quality out of it are lower. Um, and then from a developer's point of view, like I did... I did the Outer Worlds thing in Neo Scavenger by handwriting every conversation and every potential outcome. Um, and I found that to be extremely um, sort of intense, time-consuming work for a very short consumption cycle. So like, people will go through an encounter let's say two or three times before they've basically exhausted it and now they're just quick clicking through every panel whereas every one of those panels I had to write it took me time to write them and then link them all up in the in the game so it was like the the return on investment of time for a handwritten scene like that was pretty bad I guess the one the one sort of saving grace of it is that if you write a really um, engaging scene even if you only experience it once or twice that is its own kind of um tool for gaining followers for the game i guess if that makes sense so like building the world in the player's head successfully is is a worthy goal and there's probably a lot of people who played neo scavenger now will skip through all of those encounters but they appreciate now having this world in their head that that they read the first time. So maybe it was worth it. I don't know. We'll see. That's 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 such an interesting point about the kind of replayability because I definitely going through the first time trying to play these games, uh, well, and that's like the career kiosk in Astronauts and playing Neo Scavenger um, both have that, from what I can tell, they're both like pre-written and everything else. Um, and so it's... It is interesting that, like, I, the first time going through, like, the intro scenario of, like, waking up and being like, oh, I'm seemingly the only one alive here in this facility, or, oh, I need to try to decide what my kind of skills are by choosing how I interact with the world in these scenarios. Uh, I definitely did, like, carefully scrutinize over the words the first time through, and then as I was going back, and like, let me start a new character. I did find myself doing that, but it's, I didn't realize that would... Uh, that would kind of have an impact on how you chose to uh, build out the rest of this new game. And I also, you mentioned your kind of game design philosophy around having a bunch of different inner kind of interconnected systems uh, earlier. And so I was curious, um, how do you decide what kind of, what makes the cut, what's fun to simulate in the game versus what you kind of leave out and just have happen on its own without the player having to directly interact or things like that. Like, for instance, it seems like one of the uh, kind of early challenges as a player in Astronauts would be trying to dock your ship for the first time or things like that. Um, so I'm curious, just where, where do you kind of pick where the line is between we want you to actually experience, like, doing this thing for real versus it just happened. It's fine. Right. Well, um, I think to my shame... Um, one of my development strategies is to just add it and see. Um, and that that's time consuming and or expensive, um, but it's also probably the most accurate or the most effective because, hey, let's try it and see. And if, if it works, it works. If not, 
doesn't, but you have to build it to find out, which is unfortunate. Um, I think another component is maybe also shameful because it's just selfish. I wanted to do this, and now it's in the game. Uh, I don't know if anyone else wants to do this, but I sure did. And, um, you know, like, you could probably tell I played a lot of asteroids as a kid because well, the flying is basically <laughs> asteroids. Um, and I think after a while, it became clear to me that what's important, the experience uh, I want people to have in Astronauts is to kind of inhabit the space the game is promising, to inhabit the role of a, a freelancer in space. Um, and so, like, one of, the, one of the things that I consider core to that is um, your hands are on the controls. Like, the buttons are on the screen. You, you can hear them click, and the switches toggle, and, you know, the, the alarms go off. And um, when you're walking around in the ship, the audio changes to, to reflect the situation. Like, I want you to feel like you're there inhabiting that character's avatar. Um, and then the, the sort of mechanical complexity of uh, dealing with other characters. I think, like, the Neo Scavenger combat uh, sort of accidentally ended up being one of the hallmarks of the game. Um, like, initially, combat in Neo Scavenger was no more than basically what you, you'd see in a simple Civ-like game. You bump into somebody in adjacent hex and you exchange values and you had like five five levels of injury, and if you went to number five, you died. Um, and then after a while, we tried to, to add more complexity to that, and it ended up being something that some people consider to be the most important part of the game, or the most important evolution, I guess, or feature of the game. Um, so social combat in Astronauts is sort of an outgrowth of that system. It's It's largely the same system, but we thought, uh, everything that people have sort of loaded into the, the Neo Scavenger combat thing, the things they imagine the combat of Neo Scavenger does, what if it's actually doing those things, but now like with social interaction? Um, because managing a crew, like the, I think the whole thing about Firefly and, and a lot of these sort of ensemble spaceship serials is the ups and downs and the drama between the characters, and you can never quite have all your ducks in a row. There's always one person who's upset with you, one person who's fine with you, and then dealing with that might flip things over. Um, so that was also like core enough to the experience that it was like, we have to at least try that, see if we can do it. And I just want to see drama happen. You know, I can just flip a switch and see see the characters do goofy things and try and try and rationalize why they did it. Um, and and then I think designing and building spaceships was also a bit of a gratuitous feature. Like I I loved building spaceships out of Lego, um, and of course after building a spaceship out of a Lego, um, what are you going to do with it? Well, you're going to probably if you're like me and and the kids that I hung out with, we would get out paper and dice, and then we would you know, do arcs of fire and like who's hitting who and can you escape this? You know, do you have, do you have thrusters left to actually maneuver? Um, so that, that kind of like, I get to design a spaceship, but then actually the spaceship works. Like the things I put into it are functional. 
And if there's damage to the system, that system stops to function, stops functioning, but the rest of the ship continues working, which I get is it's a little bit FTL-ish, you know, like piloting a ship on fire and managing that disaster is is its own kind of systemic fun. But I think those kind of evolved into the the core pillars of the game, the the hands-on controls bit, the the managing your crew and seeing drama happen, and then the designing and maintaining your spaceship. Um, so everything else that supports those things is now on the table. Yeah, I it's it's a shame. It's it's my other bookshelf that has all my Legos, but I've got the uh, <laughs> uh, the new Lego Hedwig. It's it has like a crank and the wings flap. It's it's pretty neat. Well, I have to get back into like like I, I was able to convince my daughter that Lego is cool enough for a little bit of play, and I'm hoping she gets more into it because I want an excuse to buy more. Um, but I still have like two. I want to say they're like two by three foot drawer trays that are just left over from when I was a kid and they're under her bed and every now and then we pull those out. Um, she doesn't build spaceships though. She likes to build cats, um, which is its own challenge. I'm up for it. <laughs> <laughs> imagine, imagine the two together, a, a cat spaceship, uh, either a spaceship for cats or a spaceship that is a cat or both. Whisker Squadron? Why does that... Oh, yes, yes, yes! The that just got funded. That yes. just got funded on Kickstarter. I backed that, yeah. Brilliant, brilliant idea. And I don't really know... Um, is it Aaron? Yes. Filippo? Um, I don't know him personally. I think we may have talked mm -hmm. once or twice. but uh, I think he was on episode 49 of our no, podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I, I very don't know him guy. very well, but I'm happy to plug him because he's done cool stuff. And this is this sounds like we needed this this slot filled in the library of games. I'm mm -hmm. excited to see how it turns out. Yeah, I I'm a little hazy on remembering exactly what it was, but I remember seeing it and being like, "Whoa, gotta back this right now." I think it was basically Star Fox, um, except all of the pilots are cats. Maybe they're not all cats. <laughs> But, I mean, it's just mm -hmm. like, yes, cats flying spaceships, absolutely. I know there's a big audience out there for mm -hmm. that. That was actually the case with going back to, like, Wing Commander, too, wasn't it? Right? Like, you had the the lion people. What were they called? Kilrathi? Something like that? But those were, like, lions and or tigers that piloted spaceships, and that was well-received. So. When did Wing Commander come out? A long time ago. Okay. Yeah, I was gonna say I think it's before my time, and that also means uh, that, that was before Ian's time. Was not part of Chris Robertson Industries. Uh, that was Origin Software. So Origin's been out of business for God, like thirty years, probably. So no, probably only twenty years. I think the first Wing Commander was probably mid to late eighties, though. So okay, it was a while ago. So like ten years before me. <laughs> okay, yeah, probably. <laughs> it, it is extremely retro, but they, uh, I think, the ripples of that game have have continued to affect everything we we touch now, um, and like even um, we were yesterday talking about blueprints in the game, and I dug out the old uh, the old blueprints that came with Wing Commander because like there were couple of flyable ships and they just had these white sheets 
I don't know if you remember, uh, like the old GI Joe sets would come with blueprints in them too. Um, but it's like that, just a big white sheet with literal blue ink sort of schematics of the thing. And then like technical readouts all along the side of the graph paper and that kind of stuff was just so cool. I had no um, idea that they did that. I, uh, I, I had Bionicles as a kid instead of, instead of GI Joe. Those are my uh, action figures of choice. <laughs> did they have technical readouts? They are. Oh, that would have been really cool. Um, they they definitely did have really nice packaging. All their all their canisters also doubled as like a lore piece. So like the Toa showed up, washed up on the uh, the beach in the canisters that you buy them in, and then the bad guys like hang upside down inside of the canister after you build it. Uh, you like rip off the sticker, and you can like look at it in there, and that's its hive. Cool. Yeah. That sounds clever. Clever mm -hmm. packaging. The old Transformers kind of did something, uh, not like that, but mm -hmm. cool too, where it's like the packaging was fun. Um, and that was the, uh, you got like the decoder sheet, which is just like red cellophane card. Um, and then like there was this, this garbled kind of graph on the back with like their stats on it. And then if you held the red cellophane over it, it would decode it and you could see the graph. And so you could, you could be like, oh, you keep the box for that reason, right? Like you had this... Mm -hmm. All of the stats were on the box or her stats. Um, but I think on top of that, they just had like this massive mural on the back of every box of like all of the Transformers engaged in this this giant space battle. And it was almost like a collector's sheet. Like mm -hmm. uh, this is this is something you want to hold on to for reference later. Um, yeah, physical physical stuff to come with your come with your toys. More of that, please. Agreed. Yeah. I I want nice physical things. Yeah, because, like, there's so many collector's editions of things and whatnot that just has, like, all these, like, it's, like, kind of cool, but I I love interactive bits, like mm -hmm. like the decoder there or the going back to Legos, the, the Harry Potter sets were always my favorite because they always had Easter eggs and trap doors and, like... Oh hidden panels and uh because you know it's all magic so it's like oh like surprise spin this thing and all of a sudden the staircase shows up um and the old uh there was in the 90s there was also late 90s early 2000s there was another lego series um it uh it was like this adventure he it was basically legos rip off of indiana jones right um and that that also had a lot of really cool like trapdoors and hidden stuff as well. And I don't find that too much with uh, a lot of the more modern sets. Yeah, there was um, a, a series of toys that was I think it was probably targeted more at girls at the times. Uh, it was um, Polly Pocket. Oh yeah, uh, and they were like miniaturized. Well, they were real-sized accessories with miniaturized people house stuff inside, which I always thought was super cool. Like, you open it up, and it is, like, uh, hidden containers, or, like, you push this lever, and, like, a panel opens up, and it turns out, like, that's a hot tub. Or, like, you, you slide open this thing, and it becomes, like, stairs to go up to the next level. And, like, I don't know, I, I think... They may have missed their market by by trying to focus that just on girls because I think 
boys and girls just love interactive, hidden surprise type, mm -hmm. type stuff. Um, I mean, heck, the Transformers market is literally Polly Pocket just with a different... <laughs> I remember seeing the Polly Pocket uh, ads running on TV and being like, whoa, that's cool. I wish it was for me, a boy. I wish uh, I could bring that to school and not get beat up. <laughs> uh, and now me, of course, you know, as an adult, I'm like, whatever, I should have just gotten that. With a pint of ice cream, and that's my dinner and entertainment for the evening. Yeah, pretty much. Don't put it So the, the real question is, which flavor? Uh, I was always a coffee ice cream kid. Mm. I liked coffee. Of course, if you do coffee the way I did it as a kid, it basically was ice cream. Um, these days, I don't know. We got a really good mint chocolate chip the other day, the other day, the other week. Um, and it, it tastes pretty much like you'd expect, but like there's something about the texture of the chocolate chips where they were just the right hardness and size that it was like satisfying to bite into each one. Ooh. So that was pretty good too. I don't know if I could pick one. No. Was it like mint chunk or? Probably more mint chunk than chocolate chip. It wasn't like Hershey's perfectly formed mm -hmm. uh, chips, but, uh, yeah, it was. I don't even know the brand name. I should at least learn brand names so I can plug them when I <laughs> plug them when I'm plugging uh -huh. them. But can't remember. So. For sure, I've I've gotten in the the habit of like taking pictures, being like, "Ooh, I really like this." Take a picture. That's smart. Yeah, like mm -hmm. I need to remember this. We do it. We had a wine the other day, which we don't have wine very often, and then we're like, "This is really good. We should remember it." So we took a picture of that. Um, now the question is, the next time we're buying wine, are we going to remember where that photo is and? <laughs> So that's, that's the next step, is if you back it up to Google Photos, their AI, yeah. you can search, like, wine. You can search, like, food or ice cream, Ooh. and it will be able to, like, filter through there and hopefully get the image that you're looking for. I think that works as long as it's the last year and a half, two years. But beyond that, I've cleared out my photos because mm. they were competing for space. Um, there was a, a two-year period where Google, like defaulted to um high res quality well it's the, the <laughs> short video versions you, oh god those yes yeah yeah picture and then it's like five or not even five seconds of like mm -hmm. video to go with it right like, like the harry potter photos almost um, oh yeah and i was like oh this is neat and then like a year later it's like i'm out of space what what happened <laughs> like, i don't remember taking that many photos and it turns out like every photo has a little mpeg associated with it and i was like oh geez i'm burning through storage space so i turn that off i know i'm gonna be so sad when i when i run out because the the pixel phones like they they give you two years free uh or like two years infinite free on those on any pictures taken within that two year period doesn't count towards your total oh, um nice. but the next pixel phone that comes out they're like we're not doing that anymore yeah they turned it off this year i think uh they, they just said we're now stopping that because we're running out of storage, which is weird to hear because Google was always the yeah. gigabyte of email storage. And it's like, what? A gigabyte of email storage? That's crazy. And now, now they must be running finally out of space. I don't know if it's like there's no more surface on the planet for them to build a data center. <laughs> but they've maxed out. So. Now that everyone's finally using Google Photos, they can get rid of the incentives. 
Um, yeah. No, but <laughs> they have enough yeah, members. They have enough. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, yeah, that actually was a big part of what I understand, though, was they were trying to use it to feed a lot of their AI, it sounded like, similar to Gmail and other things with advertising. Too much data. Too much data. Yeah, yeah this was enough. We're at capacity. <laughs> but, um, Our also, data's too diverse now. <laughs> I believe if you do have a Pixel phone, you can still use the uh, high-quality ones for free. They did get rid of that for all the other phones, though. So if you're on an iPhone or a Galaxy or something, you're out of luck unless you want to pay for their Google One stuff. So I'm fellow fellow Pixel user here, uh, really happy with it. Um, and the, hey, the Pixel crew. Yeah. <laughs> um, I also are you Google Fi users? Uh, yes. Not yet. I, I like I that should... a lot. Um, yeah. It, that was an eye opener coming from the, the, especially the plans up in Canada, but even the plans in the U.S. are pretty bad. So. Yeah. So I I've been curious about how it is in Seattle, and since you're happy, I'm guessing that it's it's good. Yeah. I mean, I've. I've not run into the only place I ran into an outage um, was when we went to Montana, Eureka, Montana, mm-hmm. um, from Seattle. There are definitely spots getting out into like national forest where you won't, and I don't know if anyone would get a signal there. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when we got into town, there were some places where like other family members had signals and we didn't, um, but it was still pretty limited in terms of outage areas like we could walk down down the street a bit and get a signal so it it was still pretty close um gotcha. that's the only time that i feel like we've been we've been out of touch with it um and definitely the fact that it tethers to wi-fi like you know it it, it jumps between the two different um cell tower formats and then wi-fi and between the three of those there's always something I don't know what happens if you're if you're in the middle of the national forest and you need emergency help. Though I, I think it would use the emergency cell towers no matter the carrier, but I've never run into that before. So, but fingers crossed, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> huh? I might have to finally make the uh, the switch. I've been I've been like running running a spreadsheet recently because I'm I'm moving and my rent is going up quite a bit. Mm. But I'm gonna have AC, so like it's it's worth it. Um, mm. But yeah, I'm just like, where can I where can I cut a few dollars here and a few dollars there, just to just to feel a little less bad about making my Definitely rent go up the as much. Option I've had, but mm-hmm. I haven't been a super cell phone cell phone user. Like before, I had this. The thing that we had was prepaid cell phones, mm. and it was like we'd spend. 50 or a hundred dollars on like a prepaid card for the cell phone or prepaid minutes. And within a year, we might not even use it because we were just non cell phone users. Um, that's definitely changed. Like since we got the, the smartphone plus the Google Fi combo, we are definitely doing a lot more phone stuff. Um, like pulled screaming out of the dark ages <laughs> into uh, modern technology. But I've been pretty happy with it, and not too expensive. Like, I like the fact that it's basically metered cost. Mm-hmm. It's like a minimum monthly fee of what is it, seventeen dollars, twenty dollars, something like that. <laughs> yes, sir. Um, it's a reasonable like what you paid for a landline back in the day. Um, and then data is 
is like they charge you in advance for I think ten dollars worth of data and then give you back whatever you don't use at the end of the month, which I feel like it's the way it should be. So yeah, I I could get behind that. I I'm paying I I'm grandfathered in to a plan that T-Mobile hasn't offered for years, um, and I I refuse to upgrade because a uh, I'm paying fifty dollars, and if I wanted to get their modern one, it would be eighty. So, mm. like, huge, huge That's spike. Yeah. Uh, and then also, I have all these, all these little perks, like free international uh, texting, and in like hundred twenty mm. countries, and uh, being able to that with five. Yeah, I was gonna say five. It comes <laughs> with. It's cheaper than that, and it technically uses the T-Mobile network when it's on that band. So yep. Hmm. Uh, used Fi hmm. the whole time I was in Canada. Yeah. God, you know, next time we we really just got to get Google Fi to sponsor this podcast. I was going to say, can you? <laughs> I'm plugging it a lot. <laughs> sponsored Fi <Fi-talk? laughs> This podcast is sponsored by Verizon. Does that work out? Notes to them. Yo, uh, so we were thinking of having you sponsor our podcast. We already recorded it as such. We can we can remove it, of course, but uh, <laughs> but if you wanted us to leave it in, uh, otherwise just edit in nondescript carrier or something, and very clearly the exact same audio sample every time, just covering it up. It's fine. So far, uh, I've been really happy with it, Verizon. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Sign up with our code Indie Eight today and save absolutely nothing. <laughs> I don't think I'd want my name attached to that. <laughs> Are there any things from working at Bioware, working you know like in the AAA game space, uh, that you miss and or would like to introduce to Indie? Oh well, it's harder to introduce, but the I mean I miss the team that I used to work with at, at uh, BioWare. Like the, the people there were, were definitely top-notch. And I still work with Chris, who um, I met at BioWare. So it, um, it was definitely a good time working with those people and having the, the kind of like shared brain, you know, to solve problems and, and uh, just work through things with. Um, as far as like either management styles or anything like that to bring into indies, I don't know. Um, I mean, the the larger outfits do have a lot more things they can do just because they can afford it. Um, like physical merch is is fun to do if you can afford to do it, and it, it's cool if indies can pull it off. Um, but. Uh, yeah, like there's so much in running a large studio that I think is just incompatible with with small budgets. Um, you know, so many things at big studios are just solved with more money, uh, even though they do try to be as efficient as possible. Like when you get above a certain size, there are just costs you can't escape, right? Like ten people, you can probably manage fine without somebody to coordinate them all. Like mm-hmm. They can self coordinate, but. 100 people, 400 people, 4,000 people. I think EA might have 8,000 people worldwide. Like, there's a lot of management that has to be, or I think has to be kind of in there to coordinate all that. Um, and, yeah, that doesn't really scale down without getting rid of certain techniques and people. So, 
Sure. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how how in, indie publishing goes. Like, um, we are we are in the middle of I think another change in the way indie studios work. Yeah, there was a lot of talk about that uh, late last year, and I feel like we've brought it up in every show that we've had since the, the talk came out. I mean, it, it makes sense. This is a, a podcast about indie developers, so yeah, it will come up. Um, but yeah, there's Perennial like, topic. huh? Perennial topic. There's, there's always change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the debate over the terminology is is almost as common as the field changes, right? Like, mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever heard a satisfying technical definition of indie that wasn't immediately broken by an example I could think of. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of a vibe, I guess, <laughs> the indie vibe. <laughs> yep, that's kind of what we've all ended up coming to, is, like, it's the it's more of a, a spiritual thing. Like, there's the indie spirit or yeah, that goes into a game. The indie, the indie spirit. spirit or something. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. The Sounds like the name of a plane in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. The parent, the <laughs> child, the indie spirit. <laughs> the Trinity. <laughs> uh, the the Triforce of indie. Triforce. There you go. Yeah. Bring it up into a, a more recognizable terminology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Triforce is from that indie game years ago. Yeah. 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 Back. Back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. By indie developer uh, Miyamoto. Miyamoto did yes. Mario. <laughs> who who did who did a Zelda? Little, little known pachinko man- manufacturer and and card printing company. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's that's still the only yeah yeah. No. <laughs> what advice would you give to somebody trying to get into the indie game scene in twenty twenty one? Twenty twenty one. Hmm. Well, make sure you're covered uh, financially for the jump. Or if God, there's so many ways to do it, like <laughs> um, so, some people do part-time work or full-time work with with indie part-time on the side. Um, it's financially safe, but it's also really hard to muster up the energy after a full day's work to do more work. Um, some people, like me, just save up money for a really long time and then finally pull the trigger when they think the time is right. It's a really hard decision to make. Um, I, uh, I tried to document as much of that transition as possible on my blog. Um, it's called game dev gone rogue. Um, I don't really write there anymore, but, but that's what that's all about. That, that kind of mm-hmm. diving, diving into the you've game. gone rogue on your game dog or game, game dev gone rogue. Gone rogue again. Uh. Rogue. Um, <laughs> But in that case, like what I did was I, I had enough of a financial cushion to at least try an idea or two. Um, and in my case, I would have exhausted it before the game was done. So I kind of pivoted a couple times so I could get something out and beta fund it, uh, which was Neo Scavenger. Um, so that's that's a way to do it. Working with people um, speeds things up in some ways and slows things down in others. Um, but if you are working with people you enjoy working with, it almost doesn't matter because you are spending time well, as long as you can afford it. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I, I just be safe about it. Like there's for every success story you hear, there's probably 99 failure stories that you don't hear and success bias is a real thing. Um, so just take care of yourself. 
All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us, Dan. Well, thank you for having me. Enjoyed talking with you guys. Likewise. See you later. It's mutual. Yeah. Thank you for listening in to episode 93 of Indie Radio. Indie Radio is recorded using open broadcaster software and edited with Audacity. You can find more of our shows on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and more. Next week, we chat with Sam and Shuri, a game developer from the UK who joins us to talk about his latest game, Sealed Estate, which is part of a new collection called 10MG. Thank you again for listening, and we hope to see you then.